The COVID-19 pandemic has tested us all in new and difficult ways. We've been separated from family and friends, and daily life has been just a bit harder. But there's a place in our community where these difficulties have been magnified manyfold for hospital. When people are sick, they need family and friends. And staff at the hospital need to be able to provide both treatment and care. In children's health care, family are even more important to do some of the basics like feeding and clothing and toileting, to help make decisions, along with providing entertainment and, of course, comfort. Staff also need to be able to provide what we call family-centred care. So what happens in a children's hospital when our way of providing good medicine is threatened? Welcome to Essential Ethics and the next podcast in our nursing ethics series, Family-Centred Care and the Pandemic. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital. To consider these issues and take you deep into the Children's Hospital, I'm joined by Ali Barlow, Clinical Nurse Consultant at the RCH Children's Cancer Centre. Welcome, Ali. Thank you, John. I'm also joined by Jenny O'Neill, Clinical Nurse Consultant at RCH in Nursing Education and has also worked closely with our neurodisability services. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks, John. Jenny's also to be congratulated because she's recently completed a Master's of Bioethics. Thank you. It's no mean feat while working at the Children's Hospital and managing a family and a lively dog. Well done, Jenny. Two dogs. (laughs) Two dogs. (laughs) I think it's timely for us to be discussing family-centred care in the pandemic because the pandemic's not going away even if the community is opening up again. From an ethical standpoint, the things we've lost in the pandemic have highlighted what we were doing and the importance of those things in normal times. Jenny, I'd like to start with you and just consider what is family-centred care? So family-centred care is a model used extensively worldwide now in child health care and now also in adult care, that puts the family dynamics at the centre of what we do. So the theoretical origins stemmed from, firstly, a report of the children's care in hospital in the UK, the Platt Report, in the 1950s, which recommended parental presence, particularly mother's presence with children in hospital, which was a bit novel at the time. And then was further supported by the development of attachment theory which was described by John Bowlby and then further by Ainsworth and Robertson, which focused on the importance of the mother-infant bond in terms of ongoing emotional and psychological development of the child. And then subsequently was broadened to incorporate the importance of a primary caregiver, not necessarily just the mother. So over some decades, this has been applied to healthcare and particularly paediatric healthcare, um, most significantly with sort of opening visiting hours to parents around the 1960s, which previous to that was about parents visited maybe twice a week in paediatric hospitals and then broadened further to incorporate parental participation in care and then uh, participation in clinical decision-making for their child. 
So it was, it's been a slow evolution. So things like allowing parents to be present during a medical ward round only occurred really in the 1990s. But now we do have uh, like a generation of nurses, I guess, and clinical professionals that have worked under a family-centred care model. It hasn't been perfect um, and there has been some critique in the literature about that, but certainly it's a world away from pre-1960s. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I've also grown up in that era where there's been involvement of families in, in the care of children in hospital, but just go back not that long ago when children were put into hospital and when their parents left, they'd cry, and when they came to visit, they'd cry, and they'd cry when they leave. And so the response to that was, well, let's not have them there and everybody's, you know, happier that way. And, of course, that was... Uh, a systems or a nurse or a hospital-centred outcome, wasn't it, that uh, the children acquired? And then, of course, we realise that that's just wrong intrinsically. Children need their parents. And for bigger people, bigger people need their family. And families need their children. Yes. And so it's fascinating that it's taken from the 50s through, you know, quite a long way to become quite accepted. And, in fact, a lot of hospitals... Uh, if if you go as a as a, a spouse, will will not let you be with your spouse through various parts of the journey. Of course, here parents are with their kids, and they'll come right through to the anaesthetic bay and help their child uh, be anaesthetised, go off to sleep. Uh, won't be in the operating theatre. But apart from the operating theatre, there's really not many places where families can't be. I uh, did a bronchoscopy the other day in the intensive care unit with the parents standing, looking over my shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, was able to show them what the pathology was and what was going on, and they had a deeper understanding of what we were talking about. And it, well, it felt good for everybody, but I suspect there's perhaps a little more than just good feelings. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's been established as sort of four core elements, which include sort of dignity and respect for the families, um, enabling parent presence and participation, collaborating with families and we have another one here in our policy at the children's called zero harm. Yeah, and I think that's obviously a, a really important part of healthcare and in the principles of bioethics non-maleficence or or not doing harm is really important, but I think it shows the way that parents can work with us because we're not perfect mm. to make sure that well, there's no harm done, certainly, and, and that sometimes is in a technical sense, but it's also understanding the child and the preferences and values of the child and the family, that we don't trash those inadvertently. So I think that that's a really important uh, part of uh, family-centred care, uh, Jenny. But Jenny, you've just done a theoretical course on bioethics with your masters. Um, of course, we've got Ali here, and I know, Jenny, you have worked on the wards and do work on the wards. We've got Ali here who's really deep in the children's hospital because you're working in the cancer service. Yes. Big things happen there. Yes. Really important uh, things. Um, how do you see, you know, family-centred care working? Yeah, well, look, I think that family-centred care is extremely important, especially, I guess, in the chronic illness setting, such as cancer. Um, you know, families are involved in all aspects of decision-making for their children, and that's not, not just parents, but includes the siblings, the grandparents. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's extremely important. 
Do you feel like there are people looking over your shoulder? I had them in the bronchoscopy <laughs> suite. Jenny's here talking about doing no harm. Uh, look, I think, you know, we're so used to family-centred care that I don't know any different. Yep. Yeah, so I sense there's a you know, highly trained professional in what you're doing that you know what you're doing and so having the family there doesn't stop you doing that or make you do that any differently. Yeah, not at all. Suspect though, Ali, maybe does maybe it helps you explain what you're doing a little more for the children and for the parents? Yeah, I think a huge part of my role in the coordinating of the care is actually with the parents. So a huge amount of my role is actually, you know, educating the parents. I do it with the children as well. But primarily I'm probably Yes, it's so important, isn't it, to bring them along um, on the journey in in so many aspects of understanding the disease, understanding the treatments. And I'm sure because you're there, um, they don't have – you're there in a situation you're familiar with and it's not a situation where they're familiar with. So they're still the parents, uh, but they're not parenting in a a usual situation for them. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Jenny – I understand you did a survey of the nursing staff to find out a little bit more about family-centred care and sort of turning our mind a little bit to the pandemic and uh, what might have changed. Yes, so last year through nursing research, we uh, talked to a whole lot of nurses at the children's across different areas to find out what it was like trying to deliver family-centred care with the rules and regulations around the pandemic Um, So while we didn't have an enormous number of children being admitted with COVID here, we certainly had a number of things that changed to protect the public in terms of public health and community safety. And so, for instance, they talked about how their role in delivering family care had changed in terms of information sharing. Generally, nurses find that their role in that is to enable communication, so communication with families, communication with health professionals, between health professionals and families. And the way that changed was the utilisation of technology to do that and to find new and creative ways for families to keep in touch and for those health professionals who are working at home to be kept in touch. The other one was in terms of participation and collaboration with families. We had for quite an extensive period of last year and this year a a policy of generally only one parent at the bedside and no visitors, no extended family or siblings. So it was less about collaborating um, and incorporating the family into the child's care and decision-making than the one-on-one relationship that they developed with the parent that was there and very much talked about trying to ease their isolation, fill in the gaps, sometimes fill in the gaps that the role the partner would have or other family members or even those services that were unable to come into the children's at that time, such as volunteer services. And then their advocacy role did change as well. There was a lot more about negotiating rules. So, And that wasn't only negotiating rules with families who who might not have understood the rationale for it or might not feel that those rules were fair, but also negotiating rules in terms of advocating for exceptions to those rules. It's an awful lot there to unpack, isn't it? I think one of the things we highlighted uh, that, that you've brought out again in our series, so we had a series last year about pandemic ethics and this sort of shift from care of the individual to care of the community. And I think you've sort of 
we can see in what you've described where we've had to change a bit about what we're doing to take into account broader interests and other people. And that doesn't really sit all that easily with people working in children's health care where normally the child is forefront and then maybe the family is second with the child and everyone else is well behind that, but it's it's changed. Ali, I can imagine in the children's cancer service that there were some really big changes in the way that you were delivering care. And I'm particularly thinking, you know, what might happen with the start of a family's journey when they're getting the diagnosis? Yeah, look, there's no doubt that the pandemic has been very challenging, especially in the new diagnosis setting. So in the new diagnosis setting, we're very, very used to having, you know, both parents present for the diagnostic talk, the child, if it's appropriate, sometimes even the grandparents, sometimes the siblings in the diagnosis talk. It's changed in that we've had one parent in the diagnosis talk and occasionally the other parent will be on, you know, a device, so Zoom or, you know, FaceTiming in, which has been extremely challenging. It's been upsetting, you know, delivering the news that their child has got a life-changing disease and having one parent in the room, the other parent separated, not being able to support that other parent, the parents not being able to support each other. It, yeah, it's been really, it, it's been hard to watch. And have the parents commented to you about this nature of things? Yeah, and Jenny certainly um, hit the nail on the head when she said we've had to do a lot of negotiating. Negotiating's been a fairly key word in the last year. But, you know, we've obviously have to abide by the rules that are set. There's occasions where we've been able to get exemptions, but as a whole, a lot of the times we've had to do it with the one parent. I mean, I can see what you're describing here, Ali, in a lovely picture in a very difficult situation. So there's a new diagnosis of a cancer. In a normal setting, there'd be mum and dad, but mum and dad need their kids too in a certain way. They need their mum and dad. There might be siblings and obviously at different times of that, but certainly one time they might be all together supporting the child with the disease, but supporting each other. Yes. Uh, and there might be quite a few people in that room. Yeah. And now there's just, say, mum, dad on the phone, the doctor. I'm imagining maybe even that the nurses who might be there supporting may not even be able to be there. So they're perhaps on another device, which all makes it very yeah. sterile. And then, of course, I'm also seeing that everybody's dressed up in gowns mm -hmm. and, and masks. And, you know, what the listeners of Central Ethics Can't See is that we're actually presenting today through our masks. Uh, there are these other barriers. Then there are layers of PPE there are masks through which it's hard to hear yeah, uh, and facial expressions that are hard to read. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, it has felt at times quite clinical, quite cold. Um, you know, we've done our very, very best to provide family-centred care in these situations and, you know, that's we've had to kind of adapt, but it, it's not the same. I'm sensing actually... Quite, quite a sense of loss. There's quite a pathos coming through here, Ali, in terms of, and I think what you're 
what I'm feeling is that there's this sort of sense of loss for the child and the family at, at that time, but then there's also a sense of loss of what the staff who have to experience this too. It's a different sort of experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's been times where, you know, you walk away and you just, it it plays on you like, yeah, it does. It yeah. plays on you in, in what sort of way? It's not normal. It's not normal to deliver this kind of information and not be able, you know, to have the parents support each other or to hang up the phone on the mother who's in the lounge room, you know? Do you think you're more emotional than perhaps what might be, you know, normally rather emotionally charged scenario? Uh, perhaps, yeah, yeah. So you're sort of sensing that as you sort of walk away from the scene where you've done your best in person or online yeah. to, to deliver that sort of, uh, that, that news. What happens though then when the child comes in? Because then, of course, we're limiting visitors because that's appropriate and if, uh, you know, in an adult hospital you possibly wouldn't have any visitors at all. So to children there's this, you know, magnificent concession that we can have one visitor but it doesn't seem enough. We understand why. But then perhaps you're dressed up in protective gear, which is not totally uncommon in the uh, cancer mm-hmm. cancer ward. But mm-hmm. you know what happens to that side of communication and uh, touch and uh, hugs and things for the for us or well, I think for both ways. You know, because I think you know I've I, I've seen um, staff at work, and mm-hmm. we're human beings. And this is the way we reach out to others in yeah. a difficult time. Yeah. And, you know, even if I'm not in PPE or the family because we neither of us have COVID, we're still restricted in what we can do. And yeah. outside we're bumping elbows or waving and it all seems rather ridiculous inside. And, yeah. you know, and I do think that nursing staff have a closer, probably less formal relationship with the staff mm-hmm. than doctors do. Mm-hmm. So I imagine from time to time in a professionally appropriate way, you know, a hug, a touch is yep. really important. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, in a sense when you say that, like it's almost you forget that you have done that in the past because it's so it's different now. Yeah, so I guess this is the thing. When we see what's stripped away by the COVID, we sort of see what we used to do yeah. and, and, and how that uh, was. Yeah, because even you saying like hugging a parent, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, we, we used to. Yeah, yeah. we do that. What about um, sort of tag team parenting? Because you know, I'm seeing, you know, uh, a slave to my heteronormative uh, community standards and seeing mum there. Of course, mm-hmm. it's not always mum. It's yep. probably quite often dad. But, yep. you know, they will swap. Yep. So what happens in the – how does the swap work when only one parent's allowed? Yeah, well, that's right. So the tag teaming – so a majority of the pandemic, there's just been one parent at the bedside. And so, yeah, that does mean that the parents have to swap in and out. And unfortunately, that most of the time cannot be done in the room. And so the swappings are happening outside of the ward. They might be happening in the car park. They might be happening downstairs. But the child isn't seeing – both parents together. The communication between both parents is obviously impacted because a lot of the time they have to do a quick swap over because the child at the bed doesn't want to be left alone. So yeah, it's, it's, it's for the families, really challenging. And I imagine, Ali, and I'm going to switch to Jenny for this because, Jenny, you've worked in neurodisability, but uh, particularly there's times when parent really can't leave because they're the parent who really knows the child best and can 
comfort the child. So for mum or dad to go out and down to the car park and say hi to the other kids and tag team with dad and dad to come up leaves the child in the room potentially alone. Yeah, and, and that's really tricky. And also with some children with significant physical disability, you really do need two people or um, one children who might have behavioural needs. And so we've worked very hard, I know, at the children's to try and um, get some exemptions where appropriate to allow two parents in, but it's a process and it doesn't always happen straight away. I think that one thing is that some of these children with disability or with chronic illness are in the hospital for a long period of time too. And one thing that's forgotten sometimes is the siblings. So the siblings might have not seen their brother or sister for a long period of time, which can be really tricky when they're really unwell because they're very different to view. For the babies down in the neonatal unit who are here from from straight transferred here straight after birth and here for some months, they, the sibling might never have met their, their new sister or brother. So I think it does have implications for the family unit. Yeah, it's very strange for siblings who sort of mm. wonder where my brother or sister's gone. I'm sure that must be quite frightening. Definitely, uh, definitely. For some and obviously for the kid in hospital, even the baby missing those other human touches. And but missing like milestones, you know, birthdays and it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's another group though, it's interesting, it, particularly in that neurodisability space, perhaps more than the, than the cancer space, is, is when there are carers who've been very, very involved and I've seen situations where, you know, families, uh, the carer will come and be that second person to help because the nursing staff can't always be there to do everything. And then the families will even be able to get a rest because they know that the carer who the child trusts and has been around for a long time will be there sometimes overnight. And and we just really can't have exceptions to allow that extra person. No, in. and that's the same if you would get a grandmother or some somebody in to stay a night with the child. So it's really taxing on, on families to, to do this. But there are some upsides. Um, and a note from the survey, someone actually wrote that they had some more time with the families. And I wonder if that might be because they're mm, trapped, if you like, yeah, in the room. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I'm sure they're craving interaction. So, yeah, I, I think at the bedside, nurses have probably spent more time talking to the families because, yeah, they're, you know, not only are the parents craving interaction, the reality is that we also haven't seen our families, so we might be reaching out to, you know, to have that communication as well. And I sense too, if you've dressed up in some PPE or at least some protective gear and gone into a room and then, you know, you'd normally just bounce in and out all morning. Well, that's it. But you, you can't know, do that as yeah. easily and so sort of stay while you wait for yes. uh, the obs to be done and a few other things to be yeah, done. Yeah, you certainly cluster the care more because, you know, Dressing up takes a little while in and out of the rooms. So, yeah, you, you are spending probably a little bit more time in the rooms. So we are finding a little bit of positive uh, in this. And I think we've also thought a little bit how technology, obviously, in the situation we're describing of the diagnosis, seems pretty awful for a parent to be on the phone. Yes. On the other hand, when uh, more usual times when a parent can't be there, the familiarity with the technology of FaceTime and Zoom and things has allowed parents and grandparents who perhaps wouldn't be able to visit uh, to at least be involved a little bit more. Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, telehealth especially has become such an important part of all of our roles. And I think that's one 
huge um, if we can take away positives from um, the pandemic. I think telehealth is certainly a positive. Ellie, what about families who are scared to come to the hospital? I know Jenny was indicating that RCH hasn't been very COVID-y, mm-hmm. as I like to say, which is true. We haven't had a lot of cases, certainly compared to, to adult hospitals. Yeah. But there are a few around. It's yeah. a busy place. And even though we're restricting visitors, you know, there's something like you know, 10 or 20,000 a day in a normal sense. But even getting down to 1,000 is a lot of people mm. in the hospital. Um, has that affected treatment? Yeah, no doubt. Like the, I guess the vulnerability of our population, families want to minimise the time in hospital if they can. And, you know, to as a whole... It hasn't affected treatment, but there has been the occasion that, yes, families have been too scared to come in. And I know that, you know, one of the concerns is that if we do make too many exemptions, so some families have too many other visitors or for some reason someone's not able to wear a a mask, then that sort of gives that sense of fear perhaps Mm -hmm. to to families. Mm -hmm. But families are pressing for exemptions. Yep. And that's very understandable. And I think we understand that family's job, if you like, is to advocate for their child and themselves and their family. And our job, well, not unfortunately, but our job is to have to think a bit more broadly and think about the other kids. Um, But that, I think, brings some tension that wasn't there before the pandemic. How's that been expressed uh, in your ward? Yeah, certainly. Again, like what Jenny said before, negotiation. (laughs) Families are always trying to negotiate. Can they have two parents at the bedside? Can they have grandma come in so mum can swap out? Can the siblings just come for an hour? You know, and it it has been hard being the police of that because that's what sometimes we feel like, you know, it's Ah. a constant kind of a lot of the time, unfortunately, no. So you've held the line, have you, Ellie? I think for the fairness of all of the other families, yes. You know, where it's appropriate for the exemption, you know, if we if we can get both parents for the diagnosis talk especially, um, and I think we're a bit better at doing that this year than what we were last year, to be honest, then yes, we will. But unfortunately, we can't make exemption for grandma to come for one mum to have a rest and not the other. So that's where we've had to kind of, you know, draw the line, I guess. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Ali's used the term fairness and we package that up in bioethical terms as justice. Yes, yeah. And, and I think that is really important and there is a shift in these pandemic times from autonomy and individual rights and respect for the individual to having to respect a lot of people all at once, which we package up as as justice. But I don't think that makes it any easier to be the person. Yeah, I've certainly, I've, I think I've grown a lot tougher <laughs> this past have day. Thre- have you been threatened? Um, not personally threatened. I know that there has been certainly some angst from family members to staff, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's interesting how you frame it up, you've been toughened and you, you probably are, but I think you lose something when you've when you've toughened up? Yeah, yeah. Whereas last year it was, you know, like it was very difficult to say no. I think it's become a bit more easier to say no because it... it oh, don't tell the, me you've turned into Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> no, no, 
no, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I didn't think it's, so, Ellie. I can. What our listeners just, can't see is, I, I could see behind, you know, behind them or above the mask, though. Yeah, you know, some of these conversations, I could almost imagine there's a tear there because it's, guess, it's really hard. Yeah, it is hard, but it's also, and it's it's probably an exhaustion from our end as well. You know, I think that it's it's exhausting having these conversations with families day in day out. And I think, you know, what must be really hard is is when, you know, a family presenting a very sensible and very logical and thought out argument or, or discussion with you and some very clear facts and, you know, normally you wouldn't even have to you know, question them. It's yeah. just sensible and logical and they've got their needs. And then, and they, you know, pleading a special case. And of course, every child is special. But of course, when it's a diagnosis of cancer, it just seems to be so much uh, harder to say yeah. no, so much more special, more important if if time is going to be short yeah. for those family members. Um, I, I think the, one of the hard things is that in your heart of hearts, you want to say yes. You know, you mm. want to have the siblings in. And that's you, what you would have done before COVID. Um, absolutely. In terms of family-centred care, the best interests of the child and family yeah. would come first, whereas now, you know, the external forces of, of the the greater good of the public, which are not though right in front of you at that time, you have to prioritise that. Yeah. And it's also prioritising the staff. And I think that's also been fascinating because I think, you know, from the sort of people um, that work here, certainly all the people that come on essential ethics, you know, they, they prioritise the patient first and the family and themselves way behind. Yeah. And now though we've got a bit more of a duty to put some emphasis on safety of the staff or a lot of emphasis on safety of the staff. And we don't want to pitch the child and, and the staff against each other, but it certainly feels a little bit like we could do that. And and so now we've got uh, high in our priorities of child health remaining there. Staff now a bit, perhaps a bit higher than they might usually be and a lot of family pushed mm, away. Mm. It's a very different dynamic, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So I think from the survey, the overwhelming feeling was that we haven't compromised clinical care in any way. We've managed to keep the quality care clinically going, but some of the extras have dropped off. So do you think, are you, Jenny, are you uh, conflating care and treatment? So do you think we've kept Mm. treatment good, technically accurate, right patient, right drug, right time, right limb, (laughs) or left limb, but correctly, but we've sacrificed care? Yes, and I don't mean totally sacrifice, like I hear all the time of stories. So nurses are going above and beyond. So they'll do coffee runs for parents who can't leave the room. They'll go down in the car park and wait for uh, the other parent to drop off some fresh clothes or laundry or do extra things where they can. Um, They'll sit with a child so mum can go and have a, a break, no matter that they've got a whole patient load to care for. I think that when there's a crisis like a pandemic, it does pair down to, okay, so what's the most important thing? And the most important thing is, yes, the treatment that that we are, you know, um, providing good clinical treatment. And then there's the welfare of the child and then the welfare of the family. And then things that we are very lucky to have here, such as kinder, you've got kinder, mm-hmm. Ellie. Yeah that you run up there and um, volunteer services, they're missing. And we know that we that provides a lot more um, 
quality care, <laughs> the two families. It, it provides a rounded service. It provides... A complete service. And, yeah. and I think we're all really proud to, to work here and, and to do that work and, and put ourselves out because we're part of a fantastic service to the kids and their families. Uh, and so the question that you pose that I'm going to pose now while before we go back to Ali is, you know, is it good enough to provide technically sufficient treatment rather than great care? And let listeners just to th- think about that because in a way we feel like we're settling for, you know, second or even third best okay, uh, but not the totally best. Maybe the best we can do in the circumstances, but still, you know, is that okay? And to help us focus on that alley and where we almost segued to a moment ago was the dying child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that that has been the talk on the ground, that there have been circumstances where that's been even more difficult than one might imagine in the pandemic. So do you think you could describe you know, a situation that's happened or not specifically, specifically about one family, but what might happen when yeah, a child's so, dying. Yeah, and I think that this is where, you know, we have to make exemptions. There's no no doubt about that. But the exemptions are still restricted to a certain degree. So fortunately in oncology uh, we don't have, you know, with the treatment's improving. Um, our outcomes are very good. But, yes, there are some children that die from the disease or some, from the toxicity. And during the pandemic, we certainly have had some children that we've lost. Some of these children have been on the ward and, yeah, it's been extremely difficult because while we can make exemptions for some of the family to be there, it's not the extended family. It's not aunties and uncles and cousins. Because there's often big crowds. I've seen them outside yeah. the, the ward and... You know, they're they're expressing their solidarity mm. with the family. They're supporting each other uh, with their loss. And I can't imagine... And the ho- hospital sort of is a focus for that. So I can't imagine that it's quite the same doing that during that dying process, you know, out in the park outside or at home in a, in a separate venue. Mm. I think that's what a hospital brings the, the people together. Yeah, yeah. And, and you just can't have that, can you? You can't. You can't. And like I said, you know, we've... We do make exemptions because that's the human thing to do, but it's it's not perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think when we were talking, Jenny, about sort of complete care, I know that when children have passed away, that the service is able to make the best of that terrible mm. situation and create an environment if you can't get the kid home. Yeah, yeah. To make that well, have, have you been able to get the kids home more often? Yeah, certainly. And I think that that probably comes into some decision makings around going home. I think the pandemic, you know, it's for some families, I guess, that in pre, pre-pandemic, they might have felt as though hospital is the right place to be, the place that they wanted. But the pandemic has probably made them think that we want to do this away from the hospital so we can have our extended family. Ali, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was these exemptions. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned that people have asked you. You've mentioned that 
exemptions have been possible in those extreme circumstances. Who, who actually is making that decision? So the exemptions are higher up than myself yeah, or so the medical team. Yeah, so you'd escalate that to, yeah. to somebody up. Yeah, definitely. So it's always escalated through the nurse unit manager um, and then even sometimes to their direct line manager. Um, so, yeah, we're certainly we're certainly not from a nursing medical, we're not approving any exemptions. We're certainly going to yeah, our... Yeah, I ma- think that that's, that's important, isn't it? I mean, I think it allows you... For the fairness, you, yeah. And, and yes, so it's part of good process. Yep. I think it allows you to say, I would like to, yes. but there are rules and yeah. here are some of the reasons uh, behind them. Yeah. One of the things uh, that we've been doing in the ethics service is thinking about some of these exemptions or exceptional circumstances and, and trying to develop a process. And I think... You know, what we've noted and had feedback from staff is how difficult it is when it's within the team providing the care that those exceptions have to be made. And there's always nuance. And so one family will look over their shoulder and see another and see why why can't they have, have that. Yeah. And I think that's terribly corrosive for the care that's that's given. And so I'm hoping that we'll end up with a situation where somebody outside the immediate team gets to make um, you know, gets to actually have the final say, which does allow the team to advocate yep. for the for the patient yep. and the family. Yeah, uh, and it is. I'm hoping that that might make a difference. Do you think that would? Yeah, that look, would help? It, it's certainly been um, it's certainly been a lot easier from our end in saying, look, this is unfortunately we're going to advocate, but we're unfortunately not the ultimate decision makers. And I guess having that families knowing that. I think is protects us a little bit. So Jenny, I'm going to bounce back to you because you've got a lot of the answers now. You've done your master's <laughs> of bioethics, so no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Ali's described a situation of you know a child dying and the difficulty of providing the sort of care that we would want in that very special circumstance. So, is it okay to be good enough? Is it okay? to give technical care but, or give technical treatment but not the full care? We've never been in this situation before um, in, in a pandemic and I think we've been very lucky in Australia to have good health care and we strive to give great care all the time. And I think this is where some of the distress, maybe moral distress comes in, is that we can't provide that care in the pandemic but it's, I wonder if there's a different level of um, different ethical level that we have to strive for there. So, I mean, I sense though that the will is there and I think that's really important and uh, to strive to provide absolutely the best care along with the best treatment, accepting there are some limitations. Mm. But I, I also think, though, that when we're constrained in what we want to do, that that does leave some moral distress that, that you raised. And I think that that's always been a very important thing in nursing practice, but nursing ethics. Jenny, we're going to have a whole essential ethics podcast about moral distress, but I think it's worth just explaining to the listeners a little bit about what moral distress is is, and then we'll come back to Ali to see if that resonates with her. 
So morals of stress is where you feel like you haven't been able to do the right thing or the right thing has not been done and you're left with that angst that someone has been wronged or the family or colleagues or yourself has been morally wronged. So you do have lots of the answers, uh, Jenny. <laughs> Ali, is, is that a, a feeling that you've had during the pandemic? Yeah, certainly from time to time, yeah. That you've not been able to do all the things that you'd, you'd like to be able to do? Yep. And if I might ask, how have you responded to that moral distress? How have you sought to relieve that? I'm fortunate that I work in a really strong team um, and I think that having that strong team has been so important during this time. But again, as a team, we can't do what we normally would do to um, go away and debrief. Um, so you might debrief together. So now you're yeah. doing a debrief, but it's also not necessarily the, and some the, of those, the right way. some of those debriefs have been on Teams meetings, <laughs> you know, so it's certainly not perfect. But I think... Um, Having that team around has just been so important. Yeah. 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 And you can also come on Essential Ethics to try and get some debriefing uh, done <laughs> as well. But I, but I hope, though, that listeners will sort of get a sense that, I mean, those are normal human feelings and it's appropriate to have those yeah. feelings and shouldn't be denied, and, but should be thought about and responded to. Yeah. But also that we do have to accept that, we are going to be limited because of the pandemic and understand that we're still doing great work. Yeah. And we're doing good work for the kids and the families and we're doing work for the community. And maybe, maybe that's a little bit of help to ameliorate some of the moral distress. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could say, Jenny, I'm looking forward to the session on moral distress. It could be, it could <laughs> be hard work, but I think uh, we just see that coming up uh, all the time. What's also impressed me during our session today, Ali, is that we've actually found some positives yep. in the pandemic and the response to that. And so, you know, one of the things that we mentioned is just at times actually having some more time. Mm -hmm. with with family, especially when you can't pop in and out, so you just stay in. It gives you opportunity yeah. uh, to do that. I, I think it sounds like people have been very conscious of the limitations, so gone above and beyond to overcome some of those. So sort of been a, more of a de facto parent, if you like, than usual, and being a friend to go down and get coffee and, and support uh, the families. But I also imagine sort of people who are, helpers in a helping profession, uh, sort of that's part of what they do and it's good for them to, to go and do that and, and receive a lot by giving. Yeah, definitely. Although I think you give and give and give. Uh, and that there have been some upsides of technology. So we have been able to at times include more people, get used to using it. Yeah. And, uh, and that's been uh, helpful. I think telehealth has been, you know, just such a great addition to being able to review that child in Bendigo via telehealth instead of that child having to come down, it's, you know, it's so good. But also doing that to educate the family. So we've become smarter, I guess, you know, when I've alluded to, we can't have both parents in the room to do the diagnosis or the education. Well, then adapting to have, you know, one of the families on telehealth and doing the education that way. So 
I think this year in particular, we have become a lot smarter at the way we work. Well, I think that's a really good place for us to to, to leave it today. And thank you, Ali, because you've really taken us deep into uh, a place at children's hospitals where even people who work in children's hospitals don't usually go. So thank you very much for your time and for your insights. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> and Jenny, I think it's been really fantastic to take the opportunity of the pandemic, which has stripped things away, to see what it is that we want to do and what's important to us, such as yes. family-centred care, and not think about family-centred care as just a nice thing. And, you know, you gave us a very formal definition and some really important criteria. And I hope that when we do get back to a bit more normal, that we get to do those even better than we, than we used to do. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, we also did a podcast on family-centred care with Professor Kathy Crock last year in our Ethics Toolkit series. So have a look at that. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, give us a rating and share it with your colleagues and friends. Today's podcast was made possible by the generous donation of the Dame Elizabeth Murdoch Nursing Development Scholarship. The podcast was recorded in the studios of Creative Services at Royal Children's Hospital. If you'd like to find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, look us up on www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics. Be inspired.